Good morning. Let's uh, let's open with prayer. Um, oh God, give me the joy of hearing Thy word and help me to take root and grow in Thy church. Grant me grace to rejoice in its services, and let not weariness and slowness of heart keep me away. Quicken my mind to hear and to heed what Thou wouldst say today, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Um, I got that prayer from a, a book called a, a Lutheran Prayer Book. Um, it's there's a, there's a prayer book that I use quite regularly. It's called the Minister's Prayer Book. This is done by the same person, um, but it's done you know more with a, a broader audience. The other ones, I mean, specifically kind of geared toward preachers, and uh, you know, and uh, there are a couple things that, that jump out at me when I read this. You know, this idea of help me take root and grow in the church you know that you know there's a sense of you know I belong and I'm going to grow and and, and that and uh, um, that idea of, of rejoicing in, in the services of the church um, I can tell you that as a pastor I do not always rejoice in the services um, I mean it there, there is an element of um, going through the motions sometimes I think for all of us um, and to have our focus reshifted to say there's something joyful that's happening here there's something wonderful that takes place when we gather as God's people around the word and the sacrament you know good good reminders and again this is one of those reasons that I like to use other people's prayers because I might think of that on a good day but um, uh, not necessarily um, so, anywho. Hey, Jude must have been a good day. Hey, Jude. I think that they were overly drunk and high and, um, yeah. The way you worked that in. Oh, oh, I got you. Okay, all right. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. We'll, we'll see what the late service thinks. Okay. I always try to be a little bit controversial, so. <laughs> it wasn't Rocky Raccoon, anyway. Right, no. Uh, I mean... Compare that to Yellow Submarine, really? Come on, you're gonna to try to tell? No, I'm just kidding. <coughs> Actually, that's, and, that song is, is made. Paul McCartney wrote that for John Lennon after his son after John Lennon died. He wrote it to his John yeah. Son. yeah yeah yeah. Except his name is Julian, not Jude. Yeah. I still don't like it. <laughs> That's fine. Like I said earlier, it's America. <laughs> All right, we are on Romans chapter 7. I'm hoping to get through this, this little paragraph here today. And uh, um, helped by, there was a lot of stuff in verse 7. We covered that last week. And then uh, want to get into the last bit of it here. So Paul writes, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. 
for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. So, he, he, in verse 8, he, he says, sin seized the opportunity. Um, and when I first read that, it, it made me think of, um, was it Laugh-In, where the guy's like, the devil made me do it, devil made me do it? Flip Wilson. Flip Wilson. Flip Wilson, yeah. You know, and, um, you know, comedy always reveals something about how people actually think. And, uh, you know, and, and there's an element of that. You know, the devil made me do it. And I, I believe that the devil is real. I believe that the devil is working against us. I believe that the devil is incredibly tricky, and uh, he's been around a lot longer, you know. Um, as, uh, as Brett Hull once said, it is better to be old and smart than young and dumb. And, uh, you know, he carries that experience with him, and uh, he is really good at, at tripping people up. But does that mean that the devil made me do it? No. No. Um, our sins are ours, and... Uh, um, Remember that the Bible identifies three enemies that we face on a regular basis, the devil, the world, and our own sinful nature, or our flesh, you know, as is often spoken of in the scriptures. And uh, um, I like to call that last one my own inner traitor. Um, my, uh, I have two brothers, the older of which is, is in the army, and he is a combat engineer. And so one of his jobs is to make forward operating bases. Um, and uh, he was talking with me about that one time and, and the, the challenge of um, you know, getting out and setting up the perimeter you know, so that they could do the construction work that they need to do you know, and that one of the big dangers when you're very early on and there are no established walls is fratricide that the gunfire will go to places where you, you already have your own people and, uh, um, and not something that I had necessarily thought of before. You know, and this has been part of the, the this was part of the challenge in Afghanistan too. Um, there was always a concern, you know, are the people who are inside the camp who are helping, uh, are they sleepers in a sense, you know, who are looking for an opportunity. Um, and, and some of that did happen and sometimes it didn't, you know, and, you know, but once the enemy is within the walls, that's a whole different danger than the enemy being outside. And so when we look at our spiritual life, we recognize the devil in the world. Yeah, okay, that's kind of out there. But our own sinful nature is inside the walls. And uh, to say the devil made me do it, really not accurate. It, 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 he may have tempted, he may have enticed, but the enemy within the walls is the one who, who makes the choice then to sin. Um, what we want to recognize in this verse is that the sinfulness is something that is part of us. It is part of our nature as fallen human beings. And this is something that we confess regularly in the liturgy. This is one of the things that I think is, is a benefit of using the liturgy on a regular basis. Um, see if this sounds familiar. Most merciful God, we confess that we are by nature sinful and unclean. Yes. 
And I would be willing to bet that some of you could continue on from there, just, just out of your mind, through the, the rep repetition. And, and that's, that's, that's a good thing. But the liturgy is written in order to reflect what the Bible is teaching us. So when he talks about being by nature sinful, by nature unclean, he's talking about what is um, theologically often called hereditary sin or maybe more familiarly uh, original sin. Um, in, in the Lutheran confessions, um, original sin is, is described this way. Uh, original sin is such a deep corruption of nature that no reason can understand it. Rather, it must be believed from the revelation of scriptures. It's this, this flaw that, that we are born with. It's this deadness that we are born into. Um, and uh, uh, it, it is, it's really the root problem. The problem isn't that we're naughty. The problem isn't that we do bad things. The problem isn't that we sin. Those are symptoms. The problem is that we are sinners. You know, it, it's like, um, you know, the, uh, the, the person comes in and, uh, you know, they, they have all these different symptoms. Um, they have a headache. They, uh, um, you know, they're losing weight and um, just generally feeling really lethargic and not well. You know, well, we can give you uh, an Advil for your headache and, you know, maybe have a couple boosts at your lunch, you know, to help with the weight loss thing. But if the underlying cause is cancer, that's not going to fix it. You know, and, and when we look at, at what we're talking about here, the sin, the actions, the things that we do, they are, they are the, the outflow, they are the symptoms that come from the inner disease. Um, the Augsburg Confession uh, talks about it this way. It says that our churches teach that since the fall of Adam, uh, all who are naturally born are born with sin. That is, without the fear of God, without trust in God, and with the inclination to sin, called concupiscence. That's probably a pretty high-value word if you're playing uh, Scrabble. <laughs> concupiscence is a disease and original an original vice is truly sin. It damns and brings eternal death to those who are not born anew through baptism in the Holy Spirit. Our churches condemn the Pelagians and others who deny that original depravity is sin, thus obscuring the glory of Christ's merit and benefits. Pelagians argue that a person can be justified before God by his own strength and reason. So, um, this idea of, of original sin, it is old. It has been around. You know, Pelagius was well before Philip Melanchthon wrote these words. And, uh, you know, this is something that the church has dealt with. Is the problem the things that you do? Or is it the internal cause? Yes. But the root is the internal cause. And, and if you want to deal with it, that's what you got to get at. Um, and that's what Jesus has done through his death and resurrection. That, that's why we can't fix ourselves. You know, it, it's, it's a matter of needing to be you know, undone and rewritten, so to speak. That a new nature needs to be placed in, in us. Um, 
Psalm 51, when uh, uh, David writes the Psalm of Confession, you know, remember what the context is. He wrote this after he, he was caught in adultery uh, with Bathsheba. Um, I'm guessing, but I don't know, that he wrote it before the child died. Um, you know, he's dealing with the guilt, but you know, he, he knows you know, the pregnancy will, will come to completion and that the baby that is born is going to die. And he writes this confession that's in there. And, um, you know, he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right, a steadfast spirit with, within me. Create a clean heart. Um, I'm often uh, drawn to the, the image from Ezekiel as well, where God says, I will take the heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. <clears throat> that's, that's kind of the original sin thing. We don't trust God. We want to be gods ourselves. And he starts us over again. He gives us a new life. So he says, apart from the law, sin lies dead. So the thing to recognize that in terms of our experience of, uh, of sin in this world, it's the law that gives sin its teeth. It's the law that recognizes something as sin and then says, damnable. It's the law that speaks God's condemnation on the internal part and the external behaviors. So in this sense, the law informs sin's actions. If you think about this as um, uh, in those military terms that I was talking about earlier, sin is always rebellion against God. Sin is always about our relationship with God and it, it's, it, it's an act of rebellion uh, against him. It's an attitude of rebellion against him. And so the law then is the revelation of God's will. And so because sin is hostile, it takes hostile action toward God's will as it's revealed in the law. This is easy stuff when you think about it. It's, it's parenting. You tell your child, don't do this. <laughs> And then they do. <laughs> First chance they get. I mean, when they're in a rebellious mood, that you probably never experienced that. It's probably just my kids. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> my mom's kids were like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It makes me think of the little kid with the fists on their hips, stomping their feet and saying, you can't tell me what to do. Yeah, I, I'm not sure that parenting is the perfect metaphor for us in our relationship with God, but I think there are some really helpful connections there to help us to understand, you know, sin and rebellion and, and all of those things and forgiveness. Mm -hmm. So, so verse nine, um, he writes, I was once alive apart from the law. I got to admit, that, that bothered me when I read that. I'm like, what, what does this mean? You know, um, and there, there are two prominent theories out there that I could find in terms of what it means to say, for Paul to say, I was alive apart from the law. And the first one, um, 
is kind of it's about a, an age of a accountability type of an idea that there was a period of time where he was not held responsible for his behavior um, and over the centuries uh, th this this idea of a, a peculiar age at which you become responsible before God for your sin it, it's been taught in, in different places as far as I can tell um, the, the people who teach this today their current idea is it's somewhere between tw 10 and 12 that God says, you know, now you're responsible for what you do. Before that, it, you weren't responsible. And uh, I thought it was interesting as I was doing some research about this that the, some of the, the, the ancient church leaders actually wondered about this. And there was a guy named Origen. Mm -hmm. and, and he thought, I wonder if there's a period of time where, where God does not hold people accountable. Yeah, I think there must be. It's probably somewhere around two. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but what's what's the problem with the idea? Not true. The terrible twos. <laughs> the terrible twos, yeah. Where's the evidence? Right. I like that. Just throw your hands up in the air. There is none. This this is um, this is human reason being applied to, to a you know, a, a, a spiritual reality. And um, there is nothing in Scripture that teaches that there is an age of accountability. Yeah. On the other hand, is it necessary for a pre-verbal child to ask for forgiveness? Well, did you ask for forgiveness before Jesus forgave you? Right. <laughs> but at what point, you know, I, I'm thinking, you know, if someone, if, if a child dies and is, has a sinful nature and is not capable of asking for forgiveness yet, what happens? Yeah, and, and here's the trick in that. Notice that we, we tend to make asking for forgiveness necessary to get forgiveness, which means that your forgiveness reply, relies on what you do. Yeah. And therefore, the ultimate good work is asking for forgiveness, and if you don't do that, then you're damned. Mm -hmm. Okay, and I, I mean, you know, this is something I've had a hard time Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and I put you here a lot in the church. Absolutely. Yeah. And, I, a friend of mine on Facebook friend in general, close to the thing a while back that said the biggest myth in Christianity is that you can live your life in total wickedness and then get off by asked by one simple prayer. And we had a little discussion back and forth about that. Yeah. Yeah, well, and, and probably right next to that myth is that, you know, that in the Christian life, it becomes all about you living your life perfectly and it becomes about what you do instead of what Christ has done for you. You know, when we look at what's going on here in this idea of an age of accountability, David says, in sin my mother conceived me. That's pretty early in your life, you know, conception, yeah. right? You know? But it's someone else's action. 
the, the, the force of the Hebrew is that, you know, when he was conceived, he had sin. You know, um, and, uh, you know, kind of this hereditary image, you know, you don't get pears off of apple trees, um, unless it's been grafted on. Uh, but, uh, um, you know, th this hereditary sin, it, it, it's, it's ours from our, our earliest moments. And, uh, um, Didn't they say that Esau and Jacob fought within the moon? Yeah. So, I mean, they're not even born yet, and they're... They're wrestling with each other. Battling it out. Yeah. And that can be, you know, that's, I, I think that that's sinful. Whether I, they recognize it or not. If sin at its core is selfishness, mm -hmm. you know, is there anybody more selfish than a baby? Mm -hmm. No, not at all. Yeah. Um, you know, and the, the thing that I often think about with, with this um, is that we, we know that faith can happen pre-birth. Because when Mary met Elizabeth, John the Baptist leaped for joy in his mother's womb. In response to, you know, Mary's voice and this message of the good news. Um, so, uh, in summary, like, as we are human beings, and we have, like, human flesh, that's, that's the reason why we are sinful by nature. Right. And which is why we always like do our confession and absolution mm -hmm. um, to Lord and ask for forgiveness because He is the most merciful God. Right, and He's already forgiven you and promised you that forgiveness, and so that it's in the confidence of that forgiveness that you come to Him and say, "I need it," because of the faith that that takes hold of the promise. Yeah. So it's not the asking for forgiveness that earns forgiveness. Mm -hmm. But it, it is this, this truth that God loves for us to ask him for the things that he's promised to give us. Yeah. So this is why also we baptize babies, right? Absolutely. Because you don't have, it's not about the asking. Um, it could be before you're even pre-verbal. Um, yeah. All of this, all the way back. Yeah, because coming to faith is ultimately about what the spirit does in us. Yeah. You know. One of my, my, I have all kinds of favorites in, in, the, in the catechism, but one that's been very heavy in my life is in the third article of the Creed about the, uh, the Holy Spirit. Um, in the explanation, uh, it, Luther writes, I believe that I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ my Lord or come to him. So, you know, even as a grown-up, my coming to, to faith in Jesus is not about, I figured it out, or... Oh, I'm going to fight this. No, it's about the Holy Spirit calls, gathers, and enlightens that, that he does this work in me. Why would I think that he can't do that in a child? You know, um, we know that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, but that does not necessarily mean that faith comes by understanding that word. It's the spirit carried on that word that creates faith. So I sometimes, um, in, in my whole married life, there was like, what, six months that we got to go to church together, you know, yeah. yeah. Um, it was longer than that. Um, but normally on Sunday, I'm up front and Chris is in the pew. And uh, 
um, when uh, when Chris was pregnant with Rick, and, and uh, you know you can extend this to all the kids, we know that babies hear their mother's voices. Um, you know the studies have shown they recognize their mother's voices after birth, and so for nine months going to church, those children heard. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. They heard all the hymns. They heard the scripture readings that she read out loud. And I, I don't know, I think that's part of the privilege of being born into a Christian household. You were actually evangelized even before you were born. Because it's about what the Spirit does with the Word. Now, I got to be a little bit careful here and pull back from that just a little bit because I can't prove the, the things I just said in terms of how this all works. But I think it's worth thinking about. You confirm our beliefs as healthcare or nurses, because we see so many deaths of infants before they even fly. Yeah. Right, and that is one of those ones where you know the, the whole issue of stillbirth is is such a painful um, thing, and uh, um, when I look at that, there is no word of God that this is what happens. Um, in fact, probably the weight of you know what's said in terms of sin and human nature is really rather scary. But that always has to be held in tension with God's mercy and His justice. Um, I remember a, a professor at the seminary talking about this, um, who uh, he he was talking about uh, when his mother um, had a stillbirth and. Uh, um, he talked with his dad, who was another seminary professor, and uh, and he basically said, I, 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 don't, I don't know, but I trust that God is merciful and that God will do what's right. So I think that that's a good place to be, you know, that God is merciful and he will do what's right. I think there are a lot of things that happen in our lives God has said, you don't need to know, just trust me. Yeah. Because I think if he came down and sat across from us and explained it to us, we wouldn't be able to understand. And that would just be confusing, and he doesn't want us to be any more confused than we already are. So it's a matter of you just touch, trust that God is perfect and God is loving, and whatever he does is right and good, and we don't have to understand. Yeah. Yeah. This should also take care of that, that thing I remember hearing as a youngster, you know, say adolescent, you know, that uh, suicide was the unforgivable sin. Yeah. Because you would die sinning and have no chance to ask for forgiveness. Yeah. And regardless, we all die sinful. Right. You know, and th this puts a whole different perspective. I never quite thought it, but this gives me a framework for it. Yeah. You know, and that's another one that 
if you look at the scriptures, it, can you get a really strong argument that that is a rejection of God's grace and a, a rejection of faith? Yeah, you can. But we also know that God is merciful. Um, and uh, there's a lovely quote from Luther that I need to trace down sometime. Um, but paraphrase is something like this. You know, in the issue of suicide, God is tricky, or the devil is tricky. We know that the devil, you know, his, his work is to steal, kill, and destroy. And um, uh, in the first year that I was here, there was a lovely young man who was going to, uh, to case, he really bright and talented, and just really struggled with mental health issues. And he very, very intentionally, you know, took his own life. You know, and um, his funeral service, uh, the pastor did a really nice job with it, in kind of leaving that tension of whatever is going to happen here, we, we trust this young man into God's grace and his mercy, which at the end of the day is the only thing that we've got. Yeah. Any of us. I, I knew someone once who lost a daughter very uh, tragic circumstances relating to drugs yeah. prostitution and the whole thing and there was one person that, that this lady held very responsible for the whole situation and she said she had prayed that he would never ask for forgiveness so he could go to hell and then she felt guilty about her prayer and got all conflicted about the whole thing. I mean, you can understand she was going through tremendous stress. Yeah. But uh, it's a tricky situation. It's hard, and I think that the cry for justice is biblical. Mm -hmm. But it's always held right there with God's desire to give mercy. Sometimes he gives justice as a part of his giving of mercy. Mm -hmm. You know, um, you know, we uh, when when God comes on the last day, there will be real judgment, and that judgment will be part of His salvation for His people. It will be judgment against all of those things that that eroded the faith, that that led His children astray, that did damage in their life, and and, and all of those things, and 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 people who were involved in that too. But at the same time, there's going to be incredible mercy that, that is connected to that because of Jesus' death and resurrection, because Jesus interposed himself between us and God's wrath. And a lot of people are going to be surprised. Absolutely. If I get in, I mean, people are going to be surprised. So <laughs> Paul says he was the chief of sinners, right? So he's like, that, that statement is literally like, if I can get in, anybody can, people. So what I think Paul is referring to um, in this passage is not about this age of accountability thing, but it's actually referring to a time in his life when in his self-righteousness he did not feel convicted by the law. But he felt like the law was supporting his behaviors and his actions that he was doing it all right, and so therefore he didn't need to feel any guilt. 
that really resonates with me because I've experienced that. That sense of being able to just kind of look down on everybody else. You know, because I'm doing the right thing and I'm living the life. And uh, it, it's, it's a self-righteousness. And that's, that's really important. It's not actually rooted in, in Christ or His righteousness, which is the only righteousness that counts. Um, I like this line from this, uh, this commentary by John Murray that says, Paul is speaking of the unperturbed, self-complacent, self-righteous life which he once lived before the turbulent motions and conviction of sin described in the two preceding verses overtook him. Have you ever met people that weren't bothered by their behaviors and then they became Christians and it's like, I'm ashamed of the things that I used to enjoy? Me, Me myself? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, think that's, I think that's what this is actually talking about. That I was free from the law. In other words... I didn't really understand it. It was out there, and I just lived according to what I thought the law said, and I kept it perfectly in my own mind. And I wasn't bothered by its actual judgments. But then when a person comes to faith, all of a sudden the law hurts. It starts to hit us and call us to repentance and urge us to change our lives. So... I think we need to be clear that, that self-righteousness is a form of self-delusion. It, it's not simply thinking that, that, that one is better than others. It, it is really putting oneself before God and saying, even though we probably wouldn't say it this way because that wouldn't be, you know, according to Hoyle. Um, you know, but saying, you know, I've done all the right things. I've checked the right boxes, you know, and, and God's clearly going to love me. Um, there's a, 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 a story in John chapter 8 of uh, the woman caught in adultery. And the text is there right, right below. Um, and I think that this, this account is, is fascinating uh, for a couple of reasons. Um, one, a woman was caught in adultery. <laughs> yeah, it, it takes two. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and the man's not there. And uh, um, I'm fascinated by Jesus' response. You know, he, uh, um, he, he kind of ignores them. And, uh, um, and they continue to pester him. And then he asks this, this, this question, or he makes this statement, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. <laughs> Chris's grandpa was a pastor, and he had... This little cartoon on the uh, the pantry door in their apartment. Mm -hmm. I looked all over for it. I cannot find it. But it's this little guy. He's holding a rock. And he says, since I am without sin, I shall cast the first stone. That's self-righteousness. The way I heard it, the stone comes in from the periphery of the crowd. And Jesus looks out and says, Mom! Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I've seen, I, I, I found a couple like that, yeah. but it was dad. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, but uh, um, now I want you to notice what happens after Jesus says, 
Um, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. He goes back down the ground. He's still scribbling in the sand. We don't know what he's scribbling in the sand. And it says, but when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. I, I, I find that to be fascinating. You know, there is something about age. I hear lots of complaints about age. But there are blessings and benefits to it as well. And wisdom and humility can be among them. But it's not without sin. We all sin. Right. And sometimes the years really prove that we are not without sin. Have you seen the dining halls at the retirement home? (laughs) (laughs) That's high school. (laughs) Part of my training, uh, I had to work in a uh, um, the Lutheran nursing home. Uh, in St. Louis for a semester and uh, I was in the uh, the dementia ward and there is this lovely lovely old lady dressed just as primly and properly as you could possibly imagine and she has her hand uh, it's a square table she has a hand on on the edges by the other two seats and she is cursing like a sailor she is dropping f-bombs left and right i'm like oh so you wear the uniform and uh i walk up to her i'm like oh sally you seem really upset today she's like i'm really sorry pastor i'm I'm really sorry i know the things i'm saying are not nice at all but these mother... <laughs> Have a blessed day. <laughs> yeah. Things do happen to us that sometimes uh, we, we lose the filters, right? Um, but I do think... Uh, I do think that there is something about living life, particularly when we're living life in connection to God's Word, but I think that this happens... You know, all, all, all kinds of stages of life, um, or ways of life, maybe I should say, that the longer you live, the more you kind of recognize maybe you're not all that. And, uh, um, and as, uh, as people who believe in God, who believe in sin, um, who believe in God's judgment, um, and believe in His grace, a moment like that, you know, it, it's powerful. And then they, they all walk away and Jesus stands up and he looks at the woman. Where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no, Lord. And then Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on, sin no more. Did he say that what she did was okay? No. 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 Uh, I have a friend who, who likes to say, um, and Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. From now on, go and sin some more. 
Um, it's like, no, 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 no. Go and sin no more. That's what we're striving for. But our righteousness is not going to be based on the fact that we sin no more. It is, neither do I condemn you. It's in the forgiveness that, that God gives. See, the, the self-righteous, they, they do not recognize their own sin. And therefore, they're not bothered by the law's accusations. And for me, that's what he's talking about when he says, I once lived apart from the law. And then the law comes into his life, faith comes into his life, and then sin comes alive. And he says, and then I died. Because this is what the law does. It accuses, it condemns, it kills, because it meets out the just judgment. The wages of sin is death. Replace, replace the false confidence with true confidence. Right. Confidence not in yourself, but in Jesus. Yeah. Yes. So, so Paul is describing the awfulness of being aware of sin. You know, um, there's that phrase, ignorance is bliss. There's truth in that. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying it's good to be ignorant. But I am saying that a lot of times, if, you, if you're not aware, you can just go through the world and not be bothered by anything. But then when you become aware, and I think this is, this is really uh, an important part of our life of sin, or our life of faith, is that when we go through, if we pretend like you know, these things aren't sin, you know, and we kind of live in this, this willful ignorance about this, then we don't understand how awful it is, and then we don't understand how amazing God's mercy and grace are. Um, so when the law speaks to us, we can be self-deluded in our response. You know, that's one of the places that people often go. The other place that people go um, when God's law speaks to them is despair. Woe is me. And that's, that's what happened to Paul after the law convicted him. Now, the death that's talked about here, when he says, sin came alive and I died, this is different than the death that's talked about in, in Romans 6, verse 2, when he's talking about baptism. Because the, that death is, is a gift of the gospel. It, it's not actually our death. It is Jesus' death that is given to us. In 6.2, the death is not the work of the law, uh, it's the work of the gospel. So it, it's not death to sin, um, but arousing awareness of one's sin and, and its consequence that Paul is talking about here. So the, he says, the commandment promised life to me. Last week I had a, uh, um, I, I printed salvation unto us has come. Uh, is the last full page. I'm not going to lie, it's one of my favorite hymns. I don't understand why, you know, it has like 11 verses, we never sing it in church. You just sing it parts. You know, like, whatever. This is actually one of the things that I really love about our hymnody. If you look at our hymns, um, they They preach. They have glorious messages of law and gospel. Um, what was the, the, the communion hymn that we, we sang today? Um, 
At the Lamb's high feast we sing. It's beautiful. Glorious poetry. And it's so theologically profound. You know, um, we've, we've got the praise team for the next service, so that's a very different style of, of music. Um, but uh, I would encourage you, you know, when you go home, take your bulletin. Uh, even if you go to the late service, and, and read, read, you know, at the Lamb's High Feast we sing. And, and look at what that, that's saying about what we're doing as we receive the Lord's Supper. It, it's, it's, it's magnificent. Um, but, but in uh, Salvation Unto Us Has Come, um, he, he's talking about the law. You know, when it says the commandment promised life to me, uh, he says it was a false misleading dream that God his law had given that sinners could themselves redeem and by their works gain heaven. The law is but a mirror bright to bring the inbred sin to light that lurks within our nature. So in our sinfulness, we come to the law and, and think, I can do that. But you can't do that. It's a false dream. We hear the words... but we don't understand the whole spirit of it in our sin, and therefore we fall short of it. It's, it's like being hoisted on our own petard. Do, does anybody here know what a petard is? Nope. There are two answers for that. Okay. <laughs> in World War II, a petard was a, a, uh, an explosive charge yep. used to blow up foxholes and such. Mm -hmm. However, it got its name petard from the French, which referred to passing gas, but that's what it sounded like when it went off. <laughs> so that gives you a different idea of big places. <laughs> so it actually comes from, uh, the phrase comes from Shakespeare. Oh. From, okay. uh, Mac was it from Macbeth? No, it's from Hamlet. Um, and it is the explosive um, okay. idea. And uh, basically the explosion goes off and you blow yourself up. That's, that's being hoisted with your own petard. And, uh, and that's what we do when we approach the law and we're like, I can do this. And then it blows up in our faces. And we realize, I, I can't do this. Now, if we could keep the law, if we could do everything that God calls us to do perfectly, would that mean eternal life for us? If, but since we can't, there's only one who could keep it perfectly, and he did on our behalf, and he, he did that perfectly all the way to the cross, and then beyond the cross through the grave to give us everlasting life. So he says, sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So what is the deception here? What is sin's deception? That we don't need God. Not only do we not need God, we are God. That's why we don't need him. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So go back to Genesis 3. Did God really say... No, no, if you eat it, you will be like God. You will become like a little God. Mm -hmm. 
And, and so sin grabs a hold of the commandment and it says, oh, look, don't murder. Have you killed anybody? You're good. You know, and, and over and over again, we, we come to the self-righteousness and the self-deception. And we don't realize that we're actually being killed. Um, in Luther's um, small catechism on the Lord's Prayer, the sixth petition, uh, lead us not into temptation, he says, God tempts no one. We pray in this petition that God would guard and keep us so that the devil, the world, and our sinful nature may not deceive us or mislead us into false belief, despair, and other great shame and vice. Although we are attacked by these things, we pray that we would finally overcome them and win the victory. So sin takes a hold of God's law and twists what's happening there in order to mislead us into false beliefs, rejecting his word, rejecting his promises, and then despair. Oh, I could never ever be forgiven. And other great shames and vice, which is, you know, that's misbehavior. It's doing those things that the law says don't do these things. And he concludes by saying, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So what does holy mean? Yeah, Sam. Perfect. Very good. Yeah. Anybody want to add anything to that? Separate. Did somebody say separate? Yes. Yeah. Did I write that down? Nice. So, a, a little bit of a little bit of original languages. Um, the word holy in Hebrew is kodesh, which comes from the verb to cut. So the idea behind the word is that God is cut. He's set apart from us, and he's different. So things that are holy in this world, you're, you know, communion where, you know, those types of things, they are set apart, they're cut off for God's service. It's not that they're holy in themselves, they're, they're holy, they're, they're set apart for this special work because they're dedicated to God. And so the, these different words, um, you know, in, in Greek it's, it's hagios, um, which is also where we, we get this idea of, of saints, and then it starts to morph into this idea of sinlessness. Sinlessness, yeah. You know, um, and so God is separate from us. He's, he's not like us. Oh, how is he not like us? You know, there's the whole spirit, creator, power thing. But there's also this, this sinlessness. And then Sanctus is just a reflection of that. But uh, uh, this is the word that we, we sing um, in the, uh, the liturgy when we sing the you know, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Uh, in the communion liturgy, the, the original would have been Sanctus, Sanctus, Sanctus. In fact, we still call that the Sanctus. And it's recognizing God's sinlessness. It's recognizing that we are separated from him and therefore we need to be reconciled. We don't come back into that holiness on our own power. It, it's something that God gives to us. And I think it's important to notice that he says that the law is good 
Not just that the law is righteous, not just that the law is just, but it is good. So what does that mean for us when we tell people what the law says? Why? We're sharing something good. Now, I, I want to be careful here because you know, the good news is the gospel, right? But having come to faith in Jesus, having been reconciled to the Father, having the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, you know, these are all gifts that God gives. The giving of the law, the teaching of, of the law is something that's good means that God's wisdom is at work in our lives to, to lead us and to guide us, to be a blessing to us. It's not to, you know, kill your fun. It's not to make your life miserable or, or any of those things. It's because it's good and right. And this brings you health and benefit in God's, your relationship with God and your relationship with your neighbor. You know, so a lot of times people don't like to talk about the law um, because they're like, it, well, it can be upsetting. It convicts us, right? The law always accuses. But when we teach the law and we teach people this is, this is how we behave, it's actually something that, that's good and, and good for us. Good for us to hear it, good for us to speak it, uh, and, and good for us to trust it. Phew. I went over. Sorry. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for today. And uh, we pray, Lord, that as we get ready to uh, go our separate ways, those of us who have already gone to church to go home, uh, those who are uh, yet to go to church to go there, we pray that your spirit would be upon us and that your word would linger in our hearts and our minds. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.